Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, lady, it's Terry here. Before you tune into the episode, I wanted to give you a quick disclaimer to let you know that we faced some very serious technical difficulties as we were recording, but the content is so valuable. It's so good that we didn't want to wait to put it out and you know re-record. We really wanted to capture the moment and just share with you all of the amazing gems that our guests share today. So bear with us. We know it's not the best audio. It was really out of our control. The internet was not trying to let us be great, but we'll make sure to get a better episode out to you very soon. On this week's episode in her space. Specific about her boundaries allowed her to be liberated, I would say, in her sex life. And I think to me, I think she does an excellent job of like negotiating for herself and telling people like, oh no, I, you know, I only make love in my love bed or, you know, having her own rules and like, look, you just gonna have to deal with it. And I really love that because I think it's, it made it okay. And it was also, you know, like it was when the men did not listen and she had to give them negative energy and be like, oh, I gotta go. This is not for me. And so I think that's the key too, is I think sometimes we have to be honest at. Welcome to Her Space a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the Her Space Podcast. Do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on? Do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing? If so, visit herspacepodcast.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. Okay, lady, if you tuned into our episode the burden of fibroids for Black women, then you know this next guest. Dr. Joy Cooper is a Philadelphia native and an obstetrician gynecologist at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. She completed her residency at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She earned her MD from Howard University, completed a master's in sexually transmitted infections and HIV at University College of London, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and earned an A.B. in African and African-American Studies at Harvard College. When she is not on call catching babies or traveling the globe, she is fulfilling her mission to impact women of the African diaspora through her organization, Daughters of the Diaspora, Incorporated, and startup, Culture Care. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Joy. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to have you here today, and 
on your previous appearance, you talked about fibroids. Today, we're talking about a completely different topic. So we are going to kind of dive right in. Our quote of the day, I called my best friend to tell her. We made a nickname up for it so we wouldn't have to use the words. We called it clouds. And that's by Anonymous. Now, Dr. Joy, this reminds me of a conversation that I had with someone years ago, and it was a friend that confided in me right after they got their diagnosis at the doctor's office. They were going for an STD check and found out that they had herpes, and it was a very devastating moment for them in their life. I remember this friend crying on the phone with me, and I was just trying to support and kind of figure out you know, what I could do to just offer some type of hope and comfort for them. So I'd love to just start off with, you know, when someone does get diagnosed with an STD or STI, what should their next step be and how can they be comforted in that time? I actually have been through the same exact thing with the same exact STD as well. I would say the best thing you can be is just supportive and listen. I think it's, you know, as Black women, I think we are like, you know, everyone looks to us for our sage advice and you know, we give great advice. But I think in this situation, it's a very personal situation and it has implications for so many things in terms of future partners, future children, all these different things. And honestly, in that situation, I think it's just best to be listen, to be a listener and to like, honestly, and I just, this is my own advice from my own experiences, like to not feel like there's no fix. You know, I feel like for a lot of STDs that there are no cures for, it's hard to say like, oh, just do this and it'll be over. Or it's no big deal. It's just honestly, like let them vent to you and be an open door and open ear. I love that. So it sounds like don't try to offer advice. Don't try to maybe not even like pry into their situation. Just listen, just be quiet and be a listening ear for them. Right. Yes. It's super intimate. Like I think it's, you know, even the details I feel like I know in my, my one friend situation, I honestly like, you know, you feel sometimes too close and, you know, you never want, you know, I feel like the world does enough of like throwing different details and facts in your face, you know, and I feel like, you know, as a girlfriend, as a friend, you should not do that. I feel like that's not your role. Your role is just to be a sounding board. I wonder if some of that kind of plays into a stigma and Like just this level of stigma and shame that people experience around STIs. I guess stigma is very complicated because I think, you know, like, you know, typically when I, you know, when we talk about stigma, and I'm so glad you guys are having me talk about this topic because, you know, this is what I got a whole master's in. And we, I remember in that program, we had like a class about stigma and HIV and You know, stigma just means so many different things to different people. Stigma has, like, I would say, just like everything else, there's levels to it. And I think I remember in that class, a Caucasian woman says, like, you know, this is back in the Bush era. Like, I feel stigmatized against because, you know, people know I'm from America and they don't like my president. And I think that's so different from I have HIV and I have to take meds every day and hope I don't die. Like, you know, but that was her experience. And it was like, you know, she got, you know, she was really like, oh, I have a struggle. And it was just very interesting to me that this is the example you want to use a stigma. Okay, fine. And so I think honestly, when it comes to stigma, it's hard to, you know, it's, you know, it's very easy to say like, you know, you can put it all in one box or one bag or, you know, compile it. You really can't. Cause I think stigma 
it really works within different societies. And just like, you know, being American here is no, like, it's no shame or no stain. But in the UK at that time, and probably now because our president isn't so great, you know, it has a stigma to it, you know? And so I think it's really like, it takes shapes and bounds. Like, you can't really compile it and can't contain it because it depends on who's the listening ear, who is the person who's talking about it, and what is their experience. And I think the problem, especially I think, you know, herpes to me, I think is an or HSV is, you know, a huge, I think, misnomer to me because like honestly, it's super common amongst black women in the US. So it's really hard to and I've seen people do very, you know, I've seen lots of brothers break up with women because of HSV. Both, you know, and I've just seen it a lot, but it's like, it's so common. So how do you, you know, make this like a thing that like you can't be wifey because you have herpes? And so I, you know, the the stigma, I understand the medical side of like, okay, there are implications for this, but also just the, the human side, you know, like how do we, you know, what does it mean to put myself at risk as an individual versus, you know, like, as I think as a physician is a public health concern, you know, like what are those concerns? And so I think it's really hard because it's just really like, it just knows no, it's very like fluid. I was like, it it can go anywhere. It can be anything to any individual, honestly, if that makes sense. Yes, Dr. Joy. And the other thing that it makes me think about is the difference between an STI and an STD. I feel like people use them interchangeably. I see STI more often these days, but I was always taught it's just STD, you know? So like, what is the difference between that? And is there a term that we should be using now? I guess the thing is, it's it's funny because I started saying STIs because that was my training, but I say STDs now interchangeably because I think people don't know what I mean by STI. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and really infection means just because you have an infection doesn't mean you have a disease. So if I had, if I'm living with an infection and I can treat it and it goes away, then fine. But if you look at something like HIV, you can have HIV and not have like AIDS, which is the acquired immune efficiency, the disease that has its own or syndrome rather, in addition to that, that has its own specific set of categories that you have to fulfill in order to have a diagnosis. So it's more so just to have an infection is to say, I've been infected with something and that's it. So I think it's just that it's usually more accurate to say STI because most people aren't living with a disease like that's secondary to an infection, basically. Okay. So that's okay. So I'm trying to think back to like my sex education classes. And so that's kind of like the difference between a bacterial infection and a virus. Like a virus is something that would stay in you forever, whereas a bacterial infection can go away. They both actually can be treated. So now that I think probably it's also just that we went to school back in the 90s when there weren't a lot of viral treatments. But we do have antivirals for a lot, a number of viruses, even like the flu. Currently, you know, there's like, you know, medications for the flu even, which is a virus. The difference between bacteria and infection is just that there are different ways that they develop, basically. It's kind of like just like, you know, as if there's like, you know, you have a fish and then you have a mammal. They come from different, you know, genuses, all those different things, shall we say. But an infection can be different things. It can be, like we talked about, bacteria, it can be a virus, it can be, you know, a yeast or a fungus, or it can be a parasite. There's a lot of different ways to be infected by something. And so the disease portion is just more so what the body does with the infection, how the infect, how the body is affected and how it reacts. And sometimes that can turn into a more permanent situation or it can be a transient situation. Okay, so what? So then, I guess, what would be the examples of what are the transient situations that someone may encounter? 
I would say the best example is my favorite thing to talk about because I think it's like the invisible STIs. Gonorrhea and chlamydia are very common. I would say chlamydia obviously is more common, especially amongst women who are ages 15 to 24. We generically just screen all women between those that age group just for STIs in general if you ever come to the doctor. But the main disease that it can cause that most people don't know they have until it's too late and they have other things is called pelvic inflammatory disease, which is Usually when you get gonorrhea, chlamydia, it affects your cervix and it just stays there because that's obviously what's the, you know, the closest thing to the vagina where you can get infected from a sexual organ like the penis. So what happens is if that infection lingers and you don't get it treated, it can ascend. So up from the cervix to the uterus, to the tube, fallopian tubes, to the ovaries, and sometimes even out into your whole pelvis. So I've definitely even seen a case where someone had gonorrhea. They actually were like, you know, like a 40 or 50 year old woman was actually having an extra matter affair, but she was like this church going lady. So, you know, we didn't like press too hard. And it turned out she had gonorrhea. And when they went to do, like she had so much pelvic pain from her PID or pelvic inflammatory disease that we honestly had to do surgery just because, you know, it was just not getting better with antibiotics. When they went to do the surgery, and usually we do like what's called laparoscopy, which are like small little holes in the abdomen. It's not like a big, you know, incision. When they put in an incision into her abdomen, pus started coming out from all the infection that had like literally filled up her her abdomen. So that infection can go as far up to your liver, up to your diaphragm, like all that's within your abdomen because your abdomen is just this free open place and your fallopian tube and all that kind of like a conduit out into that. That's how, you know, we have, you get pregnant, things like that. So I say all that to say is that, you know, it could just be what we call cervicitis, which is just an infection or like an infection of the cervix, which is like, you know, just a very limited thing and can be treated and cured easily. Whereas if it ascends to like, essentially like, you know, great heights, shall we say, it can go as far as your diaphragm. And that's why I really like, you know, with the work I do with Daughters of Diaspora, we work so hard to teach girls to like protect their bodies. And I think, you know, my message a little bit differently to young adult women is to make sure that, you know, I think the sexiest thing you can do is get an STD test when you're, you know, first when you first meet someone or go through like, what's the last time you're tested? I feel like most of our doctor, you know, doctor's offices have all these apps with your results. Like, Show your part, your partner, your your results, and say, "I haven't had any partner since this result." You ready? You know, I think that's yeah. the way you protect yourself. That's a really good point. And I was gonna ask. I think you kind of answered this, or you answered it for me personally. But I was gonna ask if we have someone out there that you know how it is when I don't know if y'all ladies remember this, but like you think you know you had an experience, and you're like, "Oh man." I think something may be up, but I'm really scared to go get tested. I feel like the story you just told, that would inspire anyone to go get tested because of how far it can go. But like, do you often hear that people are scared to get tested because of what the test might reveal? And if so, how do you encourage folks to to get that done? I think it kind of works the same thing as like stigma. I think you just take the stigma away from it. Like, I think you have to look at it as just like, I'm a sexually active young person. I should be getting tested regularly. So I think to really honestly take I think the problem is that we really box ourselves in when we think you get tested if you've been out here doing something. No, you're being a responsible person. You know, I think you're paying, you know, you're doing your debt to society, to public health. 
all these things. You know, everyone's running around here with these masks on for the coronavirus. But why aren't we like running around here like trying to ask our partners when the last time they got tested or having condoms? Like you have to consider your whole body. You know, like you can die from STDs as well. So I think really if you just get tested regularly and just make sure like, oh, I'm due. It takes away the whole thing like, oh my gosh, I'm scared I might have something. It's like really that you're not scared you have something, you're confirming that you do not. Mm-hmm. I like that way, that approach of like, I want to confirm that I don't have something. And one of the things as you were talking that I thought about, like you mentioned condoms, and I know that frequently or what's most readily available are male condoms. So how easily accessible is it for us to get dental dams and the female condom. That's funny. Honestly, I don't even know because I think when I've like known how to get those easily are really from like SCD type clinics. I know they're like community clinics. It's usually not like a medical like type environment. And I've been in such a medical environment for so long now that it's hard. I just know that from the community that I was raised in Philly, there were a lot of like community clinics that were geared towards decreasing SCDs in our community. I would say in terms of, and in, honestly, in my residency clinic, we did have the female condom. The female condom has its like pluses and minuses and stuff. I just kind of feel like the evidence doesn't show that it's, you know, it's definitely eff- efficacious against preventing SEDs. But in terms of usage, people don't tend to enjoy it as much. It does make noises like farting noises, oh, uh, things like that. I honestly didn't do a paper on it when I was in my program. And it is kind of a little bit more cumbersome to put in and it's not as attractive, like visually. I feel like the, you know, I feel like a condom on a a male penis looks the same. Whereas once you put that on, it's like, you know, it's just like hanging out and looking like, you know, it looks just kind of weird. And so some of the studies that looked at, you know, the uptake of just even amongst women who were like sex workers, you know, who this is their living, their partners were not happy. They weren't happy. But that said, I think in a different setting, you know, this is why, again, I say like it depends on what is your context, you know, in places where women did not have access to like, you know, condoms, you can only use once. But some women were washing these like, you know, female condoms in the middle of like, you know, rural Africa to like survive so that they could like prevent themselves from getting STDs, which has its own, you know, like that is controversial, not recommending that to anybody, but it's really just your context. That is the one beauty of it is that it's not as like one and done. You can actually reuse it for multiple encounters with the same person, I would say, not like, you know, go and like, you know, that's not good public health service to like use it with multiple people. But yeah, I mean, I think we, dental dams, I think are another good thing that we probably need and probably decrease the rate of herpes that we have. But I honestly, you know, but honestly, too, it's 2020. So really, we can just probably find it on Amazon or something, if I could really be honest. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. And just to say, like, you know, I just wanted to, because I said that about, like, you know, herpes. I think the hard part that, you know, is the thing that we're trying, kind of honestly reeling from, from the 90s, is I think the 90s made it seem like condoms were infallible and, like, all you need are condoms. But really what we found is that with the rise of the condom has honestly still come the persistence of things like herpes and human papillomavirus or HPV, which is a virus that causes cervical cancer, just because those are infections that are transmitted through skin. So, you know, the difference between the condom is the thing that the condom protects against is exchange of bodily fluids. And so that's why you're able to block out syphilis and 
sometimes and gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV, because most of those times are that's carried through bodily fluids like semen and vaginal fluids. But when you are still having sex, that does not cover your whole like skin area. Genitals are still like, you know, coming in contact. And so what can happen is you can still very much so transmit herpes even without an actual like lesion. There is something called viral shedding where, you know, your body is giving off virus without you even knowing. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of where I think sometimes it's kind of hard with the stigma because it's hard to tell, you know, to say like, oh, herpes is not that you're dirty, but you honestly could infect me one day. So I think that's the kind of the hard part is that it's very easy to get. And I think that skin to skin part is the, it's the, that's the hard part is because really like the only thing that really, especially with like, if you look at like HPV, the only thing that limits your risk of HPV and like cervical cancer is actually limiting the number of partners. And I think in our sexual liberal, liberal, much more sexual liberal environment now, it's hard to like, even preachers say that because then that's not being sex positive. But at the same time, I just feel like it's also a reality. That's a really good point. Can we talk about how it impacts pregnancy and childbirth if you do have one of these STDs? Like, are there certain, I don't know, like, what does that even look like? So, I mean, honestly, they all affect the fetus in different ways, different times. Mm. Let me try and mentally organize this so it sounds correct. And that sounds correct, so it sounds, makes sense. I'm just going to go through the different STDs that come to mind. So case in point, HIV. HIV is a classic example of what we call vertical transmission. So vertical transmission means that it's an infection that can go from mother to child. And even HIV can be transmitted during actual gestating or when the baby is in the womb. But it also can be transmitted during labor through different sharing of blood and, you know, mixing of things at the time of delivery. So different, you know, there's, you know, with the onset of like great HIV meds, most of the time, you know, don't have to, you know, do C-sections for women to prevent this exchange of bodily fluids um, or blood. But if your viral load is too high, sometimes you have to get a C-section instead of going to the birth canal because there's a lot of mixing that can affect the baby. And then also vertical transmission is very limited now because we do have these antiviral medications. That's like just a classic example. And then also one more thing with HIV is that it can be transmitted through breast milk. And so that's also another obvious concern. And so in the developing, the developed world, we recommend no breast milk at all. In terms of like something like syphilis, which actually is really, congenital syphilis is actually really, I was, you know, in my reading for today, actually is pretty high amongst Black women. So congenital syphilis is basically a condition where a baby is born with different malformations or different, like some things are external, some things are internal, like affects the the liver and the spleen, can affect the brain. The baby is actually born with different defects, secondary to have been exposed to syphilis while in the womb. And honestly, the rate amongst Black women is actually like 10.3 times the rate of white women in this country. So it's actually like a huge concern. And it really, you know, is the reason why a lot of clinics will do tests for syphilis, not only in the beginning of the pregnancy, but also towards the end, just to make sure our mom doesn't have that. Some of the more simpler ones, like gallinaria chlamydia, they're really, babies can be exposed coming through the birth canal. So if you actually have gallinaria chlamydia at the time of delivery, it can get into the baby's eyes, so and it could cause blindness. So honestly, you know, when you first go see a baby, if you ever been to a hospital, 
the first day a baby's born, it might have this like gooky stuff in its eyes. That's to like treat like potential infection that a baby could have picked up in the in the vagina. And it's just we do it to everybody. We don't assume anybody, you know, has gonorrhea chlamydia. It's more so just like if we didn't catch it, it would be pretty damning because the baby would be blind. And then herpes, lastly, is so the thing about herpes is that it actually is super, super dangerous to a fetus. So if a mom has or a birthing person has an actual lesion on their perineum or on their leg or close to the birth canal, then we actually do not allow them to labor. We just do a C-section because the risk of the baby even being exposed and the sequelae or what can happen after that are so severe. So there's something called encephalitis, which is inflammation of the brain. And herpes can actually cause that in neonates or infants. And so that is so severe where a baby could actually die that we don't take any chances with that, basically. But it's an easy fix. If you have an actual lesion, then we do a C-section. And it's so important so much that, like, at the end of the pregnancy, anyone who has a history of herpes, we just give you a prophylaxis, which is, like, something like Valtrex or Saclavir that you can take every day to prevent you from having an outbreak. And is that safe for the baby? Oh, well, I'm assuming then that it's safe for yeah, the, the baby. Wow. And so you started talking as you were sharing this information, you were in terms of trans- transmission to the fetus, you were also giving us some stats, particularly as it relates to pregnant parents. But what are some of the other statistics that we should be aware of regarding STIs? I would say to keep it simple, honestly, the main thing that anyone between 15 and 24 should know is that you have a higher risk of chlamydia. So you should always, I mean, I think people in general should always just be getting SC testing regularly, but you should definitely, if you're in that age range, that is the age when A, people get chlamydia and don't know it. And so when it festers, it can affect, you know, your tubes and all that stuff I talked about with PID or public inflammatory disease. And there are a lot of like things that can happen down the line because of that. So I think that's the best thing to protect yourself from is to just get tested regularly if you're in that age. 15, 24, that's like all comers. Any woman who is young women between 15 and 24 will always have a high risk of chlamydia. Once you start extrapolating all the STDs, Black women are like our high risk. We have all the disparities. We, you know, we get it worse. Just like from, you know, my talk with the fibroids, if, you know, when it comes to Black women, I just feel like we have the worst statistics and we get it worse. So I think keep that in mind. And I think, honestly, the thing that I remember about my STI training was that I learned that the difference between, like, you know, people can get pregnant. You can prevent a pregnancy with, you know, birth control pills, IUD, whatever you want. The thing about STDs is, yes, you can prevent it from with condoms and, you know, safe sex practices and limiting partners. But the real question is, who are you having sex with? And the thing is that STIs are all about your network. And the problem is that I really feel like, you know, Black sexual network, for the most part, is a very tight and confined space. And if it were to be an actual physical space, but basically I think it's just that your network, really, when it comes to STIs, determines your network. If you are having sex with the, maybe the person who is the, let's, let's say, future of the group or, or of the crew or of the of the that person is known to going around having unprotected sex with lots of different people as noted by their multiple children. So to have sex with a person like that, you're putting yourself at risk for things, basically. So it's not just how you have sex with, who you have sex with. 
I'm just going to sip my water on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so then it's, and so then it's also about getting tested. Now, I remember once I had a doctor tell me, I went in and I was like, okay, I want STI testing. And when I looked at the paperwork, the only tests that they ordered were for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and HIV. And when I inquired, because my guess is that most of us would go in and we just, you know, we'll say to the doctor, we want, we want testing for STI or STDs, right? And don't think anything of it. And then we get the results. But I decided to inquire. I wanted to see, like, what were they actually testing for? And it was just those three. And so when I inquired about getting tested for everything, the response that I got was, well, in particular, when it comes to herpes, that it's so common and so many people have it and that it may not pick up if you do have it or it may pick up and say you ha- and like it may pick up and say that you have it and you might not be having any symptoms. And I was so confused by that. That's a really good question. And I will say this is just my own way of practice. I don't want to say that my way is the right way. I will just say that my way is very informed by by data. Just because I feel like when you, it's good that your doctor did not just blanket, blanketly just order that because in a lot of private practices, they will order herpes just because people want it. And so my my thing, my thesis as a doctor is if I'm ordering something, what it, what do I expect to get from this and how will it change my management? And the problem with herpes screening, shall we say, is that there really is no good screening test for it. Herpes, there's two different herpes. There's HSV-1 and HSV-2. But back in the day, like back when I was in high school, I remember I was taught HSV-1 is the one that's like the cold sores on your mouth. And then HSV-2 is the general herpes, the, the scary type. Because of sex, HSV-1 and 2 are interchangeable. They're both everywhere. It just really matters where it manifests and if you have symptoms. So given that fact, I don't tell patients to get serology because if you come back as HSV-1 or 2 positive, it means nothing. You can honestly have either one, either place. The main thing that you would know is if you ever had an outbreak. And let me tell you that herpes is primary outbreaks are the worst thing that can happen to you. It really is very painful. And people remember, very few people don't remember their first herpes outbreak. People deny it, but they don't forget it. And so I think the key thing is that when, if you feel like you have herpes or you have a lesion, that is when a doctor will actually swab with the actual like Q-tip type swab. And we send it for PCR. And PCR is actually looking for the actual like DNA strand of herpes, basically. Not just looking to see if your immune system has interacted with it. Wow. I'm just processing all of this. <laughs> oh my goodness. And so then so you're so you're saying your recommendation then is that it's okay to not get tested specifically for herpes unless you were having symptoms. So then what are the STIs that we should be advocating for when we visit our doctors? Good question. I would say definitely gonorrhea, chlamydia, definitely HIV, and then I would say syphilis. I would just say syphilis just because it's just so high risk in our community that it's just, you know, most likely you do not have a syphilis. It's so rare. But, you know, it's it's definitely seeing a resurgence in our community, and I think it just makes sense just to rule that out. And we always, and I think also, like, 
I'm used to testing for syphilis because we always do it in pregnancy. So it's not like out of bounds to be tested. And I also think like, you know, I always tell people like pregnant women are diagnosed with things because they get tested and screened. The only time people really like in their lives, male or female, come in contact with the healthcare system by force is because they have a baby. And so that's the reason why a lot of men go unchecked because they don't go to the doctor because there's never something that forces them. Whereas just being pregnant forces us to do a lot of things. So my charge to everyone is like, don't wait until you're, I think we have this thing around pregnancy where if I'm carrying someone else's life, their life is more important than mine. And then I can take care of myself, but you should definitely take care of yourself before you get pregnant, before you are giving life to someone else. That's an excellent, excellent point. Now, Dr. Joy, are you familiar at all with Dr. Sabi? I know who you're talking about, yes. Yes, Honduran herbalist who is on record. It, let me see, I'm trying to find the actual post, but he said to have cured HIV and cancer in certain patients and even other STDs through diet and some of his herbs. Is that something that you're, that folks that are in your practice are like practicing? Is it something that you've seen to work as far as like diet and, and things like that? Honestly, I always just tell people that I'm not trained in herbs and I'm trained, very trained in Western medicine. So that's what I know. I mean, could I say that one or two or however many people have been cured by something? Yeah, I can believe it. I think the thing is that the vast majority of people will not be cured by certain things. Like the way that HIV works the way that it divides. That's why we don't even have a vaccine. You know, they, like, you know, everyone's so anti-vaccine these days, but, you know, I bet if, if there was an HIV vaccine, people would be signing up for it, but it's so hard to produce because HIV replicates and when it replicates, it makes a new version of itself and it mutates so often that it's hard to, like, keep up with it. So I guess I'm just trying to say, like, yeah, I'm saying this all to say that, like, it's hard to cure. And I wish it was as simple. I think you can... You know, I think also the thing is when it comes to cure, I think the cure level in medicine in terms of the Western medicine way is a very high threshold. That means you don't have any virus in your body. That means you don't have any, you know, any other like lasting effects of having that that infection, which is, you know, really, we just don't kind of believe in. You know, it's hard. I mean, I, you know, trust me, I, I'm a, like, I'm a physician who takes care of a lot of Black women. So I do get these questions. But I'm always like, you know, I leave people to try whatever else they want to, so long as it doesn't like interfere with the care that I have to give them. Because there are some herbs that do have some adverse effects that aren't always advertised. Right. That makes sense. And Dr. Joe, before we move into our next segment and change up the energy, I just kind of want to ask a few questions. You already know what's coming. I want to ask a few questions about advocating for ourselves. Now, I remember when I first started having sex, I was not in a place where I was comfortable advocating for myself in the bedroom. It, it's taken time for me to you know, evolve, to get to a place where I know what I want, I say what I want and all that. So I want to know for women or men who are out there and they are with someone who, you know, they spit in that game. They're like, oh, I can't feel anything with a condom on. Or, you know, they're just trying to pressure them to do certain things. How, like, what advice do you have as far as, like, advocating for yourself in those moments where someone doesn't want to pull out a condom or maybe they're being kind of weird when you're asking about STD testing? What advice do you have for that? So a couple things. One, I always tell people is, like, just be realistic. I have this big thing, like, no, everyone likes to talk about, oh, it's different with the condom, but 
It is. Like, you know, it feels different. That's just how it is. I'd rather protect myself. I think you just have to really, like, honestly, I would say make, make an exercise of, like, what your boundaries are and what are your key things that are your non-negotiables and why. So you have, like, a follow-up answer to whatever someone throws at you because they are, because everyone wants their way. And the key thing is just to be able to spin it back. And then also be prepared to walk away and say, actually, this is not I'm not feeling this, you know? I think you have to really, I think that's the best part, I think, for me of the 30s is really learning how to erect boundaries. It's like, "Mm, like this, not like this. Because if you don't, then you'll realize every time you make a concession, by the end of it, the product you end up with is vastly different than what you actually entered into the agreement for. And so... I think one of the, I love that show, She's Gotta Have It from Spike Lee, just because I felt like her being so sex positive and being very like specific about her boundaries allowed her to be liberated, I would say, in her sex life. And I think to me, I think she does an excellent job of like negotiating for herself and telling people like, oh no, I, you know, I only make love in my love bed or, you know, having her own rules and like, look, you just gonna have to deal with it. And I really love that because I think it's, it made it okay. And it was also, you know, like it was when the men did not listen and she had to give them negative energy, like, oh, I got to go. This is not for me. And so I think that's the key, too, is I think sometimes we have to be honest that we sometimes make concessions because we so long for intimacy that we don't care about our rules. We care more about having the intimacy. And so that's why it's important to go into all your intimate encounters knowing exactly what you want out of it. Because if intimacy is is number one and not protecting your body, isn't then what's you know like what's what's the point because you know you might be putting you might be honestly vastly changing your sex life you know for the rest of your life potentially you better preach okay hate it and on that note we just gonna shift it up and change up the energy okay <laughs> that was a word right there all right and dr joy you already know what's coming now because we recognize appreciate and celebrate the multifaceted woman and believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet and you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music we want to invite you to for the second time the oh you clatch it segment do you take on the challenge once again, Dr. Joy? I think I have no option but to take it in. <laughs> you know you're excited about the oh you classic. You know. I'm like, I don't know what the clashing thing gonna be. So I'm like, okay. She's like, uh-oh. 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 <laughs> okay. Well, our first question. Which song gets you on the dance floor at the club or party? Currently? I just can't. So I went to Ghana's year of return, oh. litness for Christmas. So I'm like, I'm like, lately I've honestly been more into Afrobeats. So I would say number one, honestly, would be Toast by Coffee. And they're like, I don't know that song. <laughs> I, I like think I about it for it. a second. I think I, if I hear it, I know it. I'm bad with remembering titles, but I think if I hear it, I, I'll, I'll know exactly what you're it's talking like about. It's like a reggae team. She actually just was the youngest person to ever win a reggae Grammy, basically what? best reggae Grammy. Okay, I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check it out right after this. I'm gonna check it out. But if you really, if, if to make it easier in terms, yeah, like I feel like I just been on because even my other song is "Burn a Boy." Anybody? Yes. Oh yeah. There we go. There we go. Yeah, I've just been on like, because I'm like, what songs? I'm like, yeah, it's all been Afrobeats. It's been hard to tear myself away. That's what's up, Afrobeats. So we're going to, we will put those song titles and artists in the show notes so that all the ladies listening can get up on game. Okay. Yes. Now. For the culture. What's your favorite hairstyle on yourself? (laughs) That's easy. Actually, no, it's hard. So can I say it's a tie? 
Yes, you can. I honestly, when I was 16, I cut all my hair off. And I guess before it was called the Big Chop, it was a Big Chop. Yes. And honestly, I love my hair like that. Every couple of years, I do a reset and just go back to that. But then my other one is like classic, like micro Senegalese twists that are like down to the middle of my back. Like number one, jet black. Like that is like my favorite hairstyle. And my shout out to my my braider in Kenya who messaged me for a New Year's like, I didn't see you this year. (laughs) My godchildren live in Kenya and I go annually to Kenya. And she literally was like, I didn't see you this year. I was like, I know, trust me. I feel the pain. I feel the pain. (laughs) (laughs) She was turning up. (laughs) Yes. Okay. What's the best compliment you've ever received? (laughs) I'm sorry. I feel like so. You know you got some compliments in Ghana. Don't be fronting now. Right? (laughs) Girl, you have no idea what what door you're knocking on. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, the best compliment I've gotten, honestly, was from my grandmother. Just because, you know, like, our, we're just such a different generation. My grandmother got married in 1955 at the age of, like, 23 or so. And, you know, all she knew was marriage. You know, like, she was married for two and a half years until my grandfather died. And it's funny because when I was moving out to California, she gave me money towards my apartment. And I was like, oh, well, I'll pay you back just so I can pay my, you know, apartment security deposit. And she was like, no, you're doing great things. Like, don't worry about it. Consider it a wedding gift. And it was just the biggest, like, just that my grandma felt like the things that I were doing was on the level in our society of like marriage. Cause you know, if you get married, everyone's willing to like throw out all their money, do everything. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was like, oh, like you're doing big things, just you're doing great things. I felt like that was a moment where I was like, wow, my grandmother sees me. We are two dif- different generations. We're two different generations removed. But she saw me as this millennial woman who's actually doing her thing. And that, like, I think was probably one of the best like compliments I've ever gotten. Oh, I'm glad you dug deep for that. That is beautiful. Right, that is so beautiful. I'm like, oh, my heart is singing right now. Like, that's so beautiful. Right now, our last question for you is, are you going to twerk or two-step? Why can't I do both? Yes. (laughs) All right. All right. She said, why can't I do both? I love it. Dr. Joy, thank you so much for sharing your gems, your insight, your gifts with us. Again, for the second time, we appreciate you. And we want to know, where can our listeners find you? Okay. So you can find me personally at T-H-E-D-R-J-O-Y at the Dr. Joy on Instagram. In terms of my startup, it's at Our Culture Care on all different Twitter, Facebook, IG, all of that. And then for my nonprofit at Dio Diaspora, we're doing some great things in Ghana this year and in Houston this fall and in Philadelphia, excuse me, this spring and in Philadelphia. So just check us out. Thank you, ladies. Well, we thank you so much for all the knowledge that you shared with us today. And I know that our listeners are so appreciative and they probably will be hitting you up with all the extra questions that they have after listening. Oh, Lord. Well, like, then let me put another plug in. (laughs) Go ahead. If you have a specific question that's medical and you live in California, I'm willing to do a discounted our culture care consult for you. If you DM us at OU culture care on Instagram, then we will reply and get you set up with our platform. Only if you live in California for now, we are expanding to other states soon though. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Joy. 
Hey girl, hey, it's Terry here from the Her Space Podcast. Every Wednesday, I release a Wisdom Wednesday mini episode that'll give you the quick boost you need to get you through hump day. Visit herspacepodcast.com and click the Wisdom Wednesday with Terry link under start here to get your weekly gems. I hope to see you there. Thanks for joining us today in Her Space. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but it is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerSpacePodcast, or check out our website at HerSpacePodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. There's something inside of me that's bigger than any obstacle. We'll see you next week, lady.